This is episode 76 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Fred Culpit, the British comedy magician. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 76. And again, a long time has passed since I produced a podcast. Uh, Please accept my humble apologies. Uh, This podcast today has been mostly finished for a while, but my attention has been pulled in various directions away from here. Um... One has been actually performing again, and uh, returning to live performing has left me in kind of a strange state of mind. I noticed that right out of the gate, it was as if I hadn't missed a beat. My show was just as strong as it was prior to the pandemic, but um, my live performances were actually even better, so that was kind of cool. I did have a lot of uh, virtual shows during the pandemic, which helped keep things going on, but despite my show still working, I also felt oddly a little bit off. I couldn't put my finger on it at first, but over time I came to realize that it had more to do with me than with the show. I've been doing, or I've been working on a whole new type of show for a while now, and it's all been on paper and notes, but it's where my head's been. So when I stepped back into doing my old show, the something that seemed off was the fact that I was doing an old version of me and this newer version wants to be out. Uh, And that might not make any sense if you don't perform, but anyway, I look around here around the house and I'm seriously surrounded by books notebooks, videos, you name it, it's crazy. Right here next to me, right here next to me, I have a stack of books, none of them on magic. All uh, There's books on SEO, uh, social media management, YouTube followers, and more. On the other side of me are books on escapology, a new magic history book, uh, three books by Eric Lewis, who was a genius of magic creation, as is his son Martin. Uh, My coffee table has a book on mentalism, one book on illusion, a book on motivation, a stack of show notes from previous shows. The whole house is like this. It's like my mind laid out, um, and it's like the way I'm thinking. But if you come in here, it just looks like a big mess. So that's what's going on. Um, And then then came Jarrett. Guy Jarrett has been on my brain for some time. It it started a while back with a video from the Magic Castle of Nicholas Knight performing as Keller. In the midst of two popular Keller tricks was a Jarrett trick that I don't think has ever seen the light of day. But I instantly recognized it because it was it was from one of the books. It was was from from the Jarrett book, and it's the one of the tricks that I would always go to over and over because it it just seemed like this would be such a great mystery. And then um, thinking of Jarrett made me pop over to Jim Steinmeier's website, which I discovered has been redone. And my favorite part of his site, his blog, is back though in a slightly different form. Now, I devoured his previous articles in both his client blog and his public 
blog. Both of those are gone, but he has a new blog, um, a new blog articles, and they're just awesome. And then to my great surprise was an article, actually several, on Guy Jarrett, and even a recording of Jarrett speaking, and he sounded exactly like I imagined. In fact, it was almost eerie because it was as if I had heard him before. I can't get enough of Jim's blog. It's fantastic. JimSteinmeyer.com. Go over there, check out the blog. Thankfully, all of that has reignited my desire to return to my blog and podcast. So, my friends, The Magic Detective is back. I have the next five podcasts already planned out, which for me is a big change. Usually I only do them one at a time, and here I've got several in a row already planned out, so that's pretty good. Um, often the uh, the next podcast chooses itself, which means it just sort of jumps off a page at me. But for whatever reason, the next several features have been brewing in my head for some time, so I shall get them done as time permits. And now, on to the feature. Today, I want to discuss a man who I've read was not an illusionist, though he did perform illusions. He's often referred to as a comedian, though comedy magician would be more accurate. Frederick Willis Culpit was born May 9th, 1877, in Camberwell, South London. He was an early comedy magician, but unlike magicians who did spoof magic acts, Culpit had rather impressive tricks, many of them, most of them, original to him. The one small yet clear biography I could find on Culpit by Val Andrews states that he must have had an early interest in magic because by 1907 he was well established as a variety performer. Though he would have been 30 at that time, so I'm curious what happened prior to 1907. The answer comes from his performing partner, Jan Glenrose, in the Magic Circular magazine. In 1881, at the age of four, young Fred saw his first magic show. Not only did he see the show, but being only four, he stood on a chair and watched the show until at some point his enthusiasm and excitement were at such a fever pitch he fell off the chair and broke his collarbone. In 1892, when he was 15 years old, young Fred gave his first public performance. There's a wonderful story in the book Paul Daniels' The Story of Magic by John Fisher about young Fred Culpit attending a performance of Charles Bertram. Prior to the beginning of the performance, Fred introduced himself and told the famous court conjurer that he, Fred, would love to assist in the performance if Bertram had difficulty in finding other assistants. The reply by Mr. Bertram shows real class and tact. He basically told him that he greatly appreciated the offer, but due to the fact that young Fred was so well-known as a conjurer, it's likely that the audience would believe the two of them were in cahoots. Fred goes on to relate that at the time he felt rather slighted by Mr. Bertram's remarks, but eventually understood his kindness and complimentary nature. Two years later, in 1894, at age 17, Fred Culpit became a professional magician, performing at the Royal Standard Theatre in London in his first variety performance. 
Fred Culpit married Ada Jane Grace. In 1900, they had a daughter named Grace Winifred Culpit, and then in 1904, they had a son named Cyril Frederick Culpit. Fred's wife, Ada, died in 1929, I believe. His daughter would go on to play an important part in magic history. More on that later. In the pages of the Sphinx magazine, it records several months of appearances at music halls in the provinces in early 1905. Then, according to the Wizard magazine, in late 1905, Culpit was off to India for a tour. He was booked by the famed Harry Day. Harry Day, you might recall, was Houdini's agent in Britain. Also in the Wizard, we find this. Mr. Frederick Culpit, who now chooses to be called Culpit, is missing from the circle of London entertainers this season. Cole Pitt recently struck out for vaudeville and hit the mark with a pleasant drawing room act of conjuring and chopography. This proved the stepping stone to booking a far more ambitious show, which Culpit is now taking on an extensive tour touching many parts of the globe. This is from the Wizard magazine, October 1905. The Wizard was a publication put out by P.T. Selbit. Then in the October 1905 Sphinx magazine, we find the following. Fred Culpit, the clever trickster and facial deceiver, sailed September 23, 1905 on the SS City of Athens for a lengthy tour in the Far East, which includes Calcutta, Burma, Ceylon, China, and the Strait Settlements. An interesting side note, the same written text can be found in a couple periodicals, which shows that Culpit knew the power of the press release. And by the way, his new stage name, I believe, is supposed to be first name Cull, last name Pitt, kind of like Brad Pitt minus the Brad. By July 1906, Culpit was back in London, the tour of the Far East having been concluded, he made an appearance at the Magic Circle, where he shared his recollections of seeing magic in these far parts of the world. He spoke of the mango tree illusion and more, and from the description, it doesn't sound as if he was very mystified by what he saw, the legend of a feat being far more fiction than fact. It also appears that obtaining theater contracts was easier said than done, as many venues were already taken when he arrived. One important personal point about Fred Culpit was that throughout his life, he had weight issues. He would gain weight and lose it often. But he always seemed to stay just above his normal weight. I suppose this was why he chose to go the comedy route as opposed to being a more serious performer. A line from his show perfectly sums up his thinking. It goes like this. Some men are born to greatness. Others have it thrust upon them. And he said this latter part while pointing to his stomach. Which, by the way, brings us to his newest act, which is a little different. Fast forward to 1909, and the new act that Culpit created was called Chow Fat and Charming. And this was a parody act of Chung Ling Su, who, by the way, loved the act. He loved it so much, he invited Culpit to tour with him in Australia and perform the Chow Fat and Charming act. Charming was his assistant, whose real name was Jan Glenrose. She's been mistaken as his wife over the years, but she was actually his assistant, and more on that later. Chung Ling Su 
gifted culprit with a wonderfully embroidered cloth to use on his table, complete with Chinese lettering. Chow Fat, or culprit, gladly accepted the gift and used it in his act. Sometime later, when he was back to performing in England, he learned that the writing on the cloth actually said, fully paid up member of the Undertaker's Union. Perhaps this gift was a prank by Chung Ling Su. Perhaps. They remained on friendly terms as they lived very close to each other in South London, along with a third magician, by the way, who lived close by, which who was P.T. Selbit. Apparently, uh, none other than Culpit gave Selbit the idea to reverse the spelling of his name, his real last name being Tibbles, uh, reversing it into Selbit. This according to the booklet, Fred Culpit, A Brief Biography by Val Andrews. The Chow Fat Act was only part of his offerings. He had his regular material featuring cutting-edge comedy magic. His opener was a unique take on the vanishing cane or vanishing walking stick. He would come out on stage with his cane, wrap it on a tabletop to prove how solid it was. He would even hit it on the stage floor, again showing it to be a solid cane. And then he'd wrap it in newspaper, and holding the bundle horizontally, he would crush it to show the cane had vanished. Now, there are two stories I found about the vanishing cane trick going awry. One apparently happened on his first night in vaudeville in America. Another happened in Britain during a long run. Suffice to say, the same thing happened both nights. The cane that had vanished suddenly reappeared without culprit's knowledge. Though I am adverse to give away secrets, this eh, is surely a secret that no longer nobody's going to be using in the modern age. Um, it doesn't give every detail of how the effect works, only part of it. So here's what culprit had to do. He had to drill a hole in the stage, a hole small enough or big enough, as it were, uh, for his cane to fall through. Now, in these two cases that I mentioned, um, there were dressing rooms under the stage. So when he made his cane vanish and when it passed through the little hole, uh, there were people in the dressing rooms and they saw the cane and thought, uh-oh, somebody lost their cane, so they pushed it back up through the hole, and then all of a sudden this cane that had just vanished suddenly reappeared uh, on the stage. And you can imagine it's probably a very funny moment that someone like Culpit could really play off quite well. In the Val Andrews booklet on Culpit, he mentions that music halls and variety theaters all over Britain had these holes in them in the stages. Fred was supposed to have the stages repaired at his own expense, which he did initially. But then he discovered a unique solution, which worked and also benefited him on return engagements. He put a cork in the hole on the stage, thus sealing up the hole. When he returned to those theaters... He could remove the cork and do the trick and then cork it back up again when he was done. Brilliant! And if you're wondering what he did when he was unable to drill a hole for the trick, well, Fred had an alternative version that allowed him to do the same effect with a different method. For a time, Culpit was a regular performer at St. George's Hall 
often performing in the magical skits. This was partially due to David Devant's absence during his declining health. Culpit filled in, presenting many of the stage illusions. He even managed the show at times. He appeared in December 1912 and the years 1913 through 1915, 1918, 1921, 1923 through 24, 1928 through 29, and in 1933. Fred Culpit had something in common with Houdini. They both presented walking through a brick wall. Now, there is some controversy about this particular illusion. Houdini purchased the rights to walking through a wall of steel from magician Sidney Jocelyn. However, it appears that it wasn't Jocelyn's illusion to sell. It was the creation of P.T. Selbit, whose version was actually walking through a brick wall. And then after purchasing the rights, Houdini altered the trick to walking through a brick wall. Houdini only performed the illusion for a very short time, passing it on to his brother Hardeen. And Fred was one of the magicians at Egyptian Hall, or St. George's Hall, that got to present that monster of an illusion to live British audiences. In 1920, P.T. Selbit was working on a new illusion, something he called sawing through a woman. It was a coffin-like box, not very fancy at all. A woman would be tied inside the box, and then a saw would cut straight down through the box. The effect was actually a penetration. There were also pieces of glass and sheets of steel that went into the small box, thus making the confined area smaller and smaller, and thus the illusion more impossible. Selbit needed a test audience, so he lugged the box over to Fred Culpit's house, and they put this thing onto his kitchen table. At the time, it had no lower base or legs. Winifred Culpit, Fred's daughter, was going to be the willing victim. And after a few rehearsals without Fred in the room, they then presented sawing through a woman for an audience of one, Fred Culpit, According to the Mike Caveney article in Genie Magazine titled Sawing a Woman in Half, sitting in a kitchen chair, he, Fred, provided a steady stream of expletives as P.T. sawed through his daughter. This led to an audition at St. George's Hall where, again, Winifred Culpit would be the woman inside the box. According to the Val Andrews book, she chose the stage name Barbara Hale, and though Masculine didn't see the charm in the illusion, it did eventually catch on, and Winifred continued to work with Selbit for a while in his marvelous illusions. Speaking of illusions, let's go right to an illusion that Fred Culpit invented, and it was this particular illusion that sparked my interest in learning more about Mr. Culpit. The illusion is known as the Doll's House Illusion, in a short article by Jim Steinmeier in Genie Magazine, January 2001, titled 10 Best Illusions of the 20th Century, the Culpit Dollhouse is number 8. Interestingly, Selbit's sawing is number 7. As with many popular illusions, the doll's house was quickly ripped off. Knockoff versions being sold and built, workshop plans were offered by Thayer, Abbots, and more, there are countless versions of the doll's house out there, all unauthorized. One of the best, though, is the Dennis Loomis doll's house. Let me take a step back to my own childhood. 
it was the uh, it was a summer vacation. I don't remember the year. We were going to a place called Mammoth Caves in Kentucky. Except when we arrived, the last tour of the caves had already started, but all was not lost. Just so happens there was a magician there doing a magic show, and I believe, I believe this might have been the first magic show that I ever saw live. Uh, he opened his show with the uh, music. He pushed out a little house, a doll's house. He opened the front of it to show it empty and then spun it around. He removed the little chimney on the top and then suddenly the roof burst open and there was a woman, a real live woman, who totally filled that tiny little house. I was stunned. It was really amazing to see in person. Years later, I would own, I still do, uh, a Dennis Loomis doll's house, which I do believe is the cream of the crop in that particular illusion. Val Andrews, in his booklet on Culpit, says, Most performers present the doll's house. Uh, they're lucky if they get 50 seconds out of the illusion, but Fred would play it for five or six minutes without having it drag. His was a talking routine. He had the house filled with doll's house furniture, at the start and removed it all to show that uh, clearly the house now was empty. In the early years, the latter part of the routine revolved around Alice in Wonderland. Uh, later, when Disney put out Snow White, Culpit changed the routine to Snow White, having Jan Glenrose appear in a Snow White's costume. In the October 1997 issue of Genie Magazine, David Charvet contributed an article titled the most popular illusion in history, and it's all about the doll's house. He rightfully mentions the illusions that inspired the doll's house, which were Savelli Roy's palanquin and his Azra. Methods from both of these were incorporated into this new illusion. Years later, Jack Gwynn would also make the first major change to the doll's house, adding swords and calling it the Temple of Benares. Others have taken the doll's house concept and created their own methods. Don Rose, for example, had a very clever take on the doll's house illusion using a different method. And Jim Steinmeier in his, I think it was called The Little Magic Shop, also used a very different method. Doug Henning, as far as I know, was the only one to ever perform that. In regards to the theft of his illusions, uh, or some of his other ideas, some periodicals try to paint a rosy picture that Fred was not bothered, but the reality is in the published articles which clearly state otherwise. He was not fond of the people that stole his material. Fred had another trick that was both popular and stolen. It was called the bathing beauty or bathing costume trick. This was his original creation. He would show a painting on canvas of a woman in a bathing suit and a spotted bathing wrap. He'd roll up the canvas, reach inside, and remove the spotted bathing wrap. Upon unrolling the image, now the lady was standing there in just her bathing suit. Then he'd roll it back up again. He'd reach inside and remove the bathing suit. Now, much banter would take place between Fred and his assistant. She did not want Fred to unroll the canvas, but he did. And when he did, the stunned audience saw the woman now up to her shoulders in water. The tide had apparently come in. This particular trick was repurposed many years later by David Copperfield on one of his early TV specials. This next effect seems to be something that Culpit sold, 
and it was called Culpit's Passe Passe Bottle and Glass Trick. And this is from the advertisements. Not the old bottle and glass trick, but something infinitely more subtle, of which may be utilized in a hundred different ways. The conjurer calls for a bottle of bass and a glass tumbler. Placing these on a tray, he covers them with cardboard tubes, duly examined. A short, snappy interlude of comedy situations follows. The covers are lifted, and behold, the bottle and glass have changed places. The contents of the bottle may then be disposed of in the orthodox manner to prove that, at least, this part of the trick goes down very well. Note, both bottle and glass are genuine, not duplicates. Covers unprepared, no servants or traps can be done in a circus without fear of detection. This is all from the magazine description of the trick. Speaking of bottle tricks, I found a reference to Culpit possibly being the creator of the popular effect known as tricky bottles or the upside down bottles. I've not heard this before, though it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, let me know if you're aware of that, anybody out there. Fred had some clever ideas on the egg bag. He wrote about it in Goldston's Magician Monthly in 1911. He had some wild ideas of adding a bit of netting to the corner of the bag so you could see into it. And, and at one point, even having an entire bag made out of netting. It allowed for some very clever manipulations. He wrote more on the egg bag in the pages of The Magic Wand in 1927. And then there were other illusions. The telephone box, trapping a celluloid actor, Olga, and more. These, I'm not clear on what they were. Except maybe for the telephone box, which appears to be a large British-style telephone booth where one person goes into the box and transforms into someone different. This might be among the illusions in the famous book, The Great Illusions of Magic by Byron Wells. I know there is a phone booth illusion in there, but very little in that book has credits to where they originated. Jan Glenrose mentions a funny story in a piece she wrote about Fred in the Magic Circular in 1945. She says she and Fred were playing a venue along with Jack Hilton and his band. Hilton was actually performing in two venues in the same evening, and he had asked Fred to have a couple extra tricks ready in case they arrived late. Well, on this one evening, well, they actually didn't arrive late, but instead decided to play a practical joke on Fred. They decided to see how long he could continue waiting for the band to arrive. True to form, Fred continued on, panicking a bit, but he continued on. The band had been there the whole entire time. And just when it looked like Fred was out of steam, the band came on from the back and took over the stage. Jen also pointed out that many British performers used their appearances before royalty in their press and promotions. Fred Culpit appeared before every member of the royal family at some point, including Queen Victoria herself, and he never used that to promote his own act. Jan Glenrose was with Fred Culpit's act for 20 years. I believe she met him even earlier as she tells a story of getting an autographed photo of him when she was only 12. Some sources refer to her as his wife, but as best as I can tell, they were never married. 
the Val Andrews bio points out that they were not married, specifically points that out. He was still performing in his 60s, creating new miracles and magic. In 1943, he was chosen to be part of ENSA, which is the British version of the USO. In October 1944, Fred received the tragic news that his grandson had been killed during a battle in World War II. His grandson was Flying Officer Arthur Collingwood. Fred was so shaken by the news that he had a heart attack. On October 8, 1944, Frederick Culpit died. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. By the way, there is an accompanying video, which uh, you may have already seen a couple months ago because I posted it online. I'll post the link in the description. The video is me performing the bathing beauty trick along with a fast version of the Doll's House Illusion. Until next time, please be well and stay safe.